Thank you for listening to the first episode of The Michigan Murders, a true crime podcast focusing on Michigan crimes. As this is a true crime podcast and we will be talking about murder, there will be some graphic details. We try to cope at times with what is a horrible topic with humor. This is not meant to be disrespectful to the victims or their families. It is just a way to cope with the horrible things that happened. Hello and welcome to the first episode of The Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. For this, I went down a TikTok spiral that I I didn't mean to. I think I got caught in a time vortex because I thought, oh, I have a little bit of time. Um, Let me just start looking through some of these while I'm waiting. And the next thing I know, a half an hour has gone by. And I don't know what happened. It happens to the best of us. I think every time I get on the app, I just lose time. I don't know where it goes. Seriously, though. Today, I will be talking about the Ypsilanti Ripper, also known as the co-ed killer, the Michigan murderer, or the Ypsilanti killer. Ypsilanti? Ypsilanti. I thought it was just Ypsilanti. Is it? Yeah. Uh, I'll restart it. <laughs> no. Because I always no, said Ypsilanti. No, no, you don't get to. We're keeping it. <laughs> You're from okay. Michigan. You should know. I know. And I always pronounced it Ypsilanti. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, John Norman Collins, born John Norman Chapman, was born on June 17th. 1947 in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, to Richard and Loretta Champman. By the time he was nine, John had dealt with three father figures and a great deal of domestic violence. Violence. He was known by his peers as an all-American boy and was raised Catholic. His teachers found him to be bright and attentive as a student, even when he moved to the Eastern Michigan University. However, in the second half of his first year there, his grades started slipping and he began to commit petty thefts, usually just for the thrill of it. Around this time was when he met Andrew Manuel, and he quickly realized that he had a partner in crime. John was eventually kicked out of the Theta Chi or Chi fraternity house after being suspected of many petty thefts. Um, Were any of them underwear theft? Um, not that I found, to be honest. Um, it wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I would say a lot of fraternities, for some reason, that was their thing. They'd steal underwear from the sororities. And I don't know why that was, but, you know, they're, they're all pervs. Turns out John was also a sexual deviant. Several girls reported how he could fly into a rage at the most minor of things, even quoting the Sixth Commandment at one girl who he thought danced too provocatively for him. He seems to be obsessed with bondage, which may have stemmed from a moment in time where he found his then-pregnant sister with another man. He ended up beating the man to a point of a consciousness and then hit his sister until she bled, while simultaneously calling her a tramp. (laughs) On top of all that, he was also a necrophiliac, almost being caught many times while returning to the scene of his murders. Wow. Gross. Yeah. His first known victim was a 19-year-old Eastern Michigan University student named Mary Therese Flesjar. I'm sorry if I mispronounce any names. 
Michigan names are very interesting. Um, on July 9, 1967, she was noticed by a neighbor to be walking alone toward her apartment when a young man in a blue-gray Chevrolet slowed, slowed to a stop twice to talk to her. Both time, Fletcher had shaken her head and walked away from the car. On August 7, her body was found by two 15-year-old boys on an abandoned farm and was formally identified the following day by dental records. Her body was very badly decomposed, but the pathologist who examined her remains was able to determine Fletcher had been stabbed approximately 30 times in the chest and abdomen with a knife or other sharp object. Oh my gosh. Her feet had been severed just above the ankle. The thumb and sections of her fingers on one hand were missing, and one form forearm had been severed from her body. These appendages were never found. Even though the advanced stage of decomposition, the pathologist was also able to find mul multiple lineal abrasions on Fletcher's chest and torso, indicating that she was uh, had been extensively beaten before her untimely death. Police theorized that she had been raped, but the decomposition had erased any conclusive evidence of sexual assault. A detailed examination of the crime scene revealed that her body had been moved three times throughout the month that it was undiscovered. Initially, the body had been laying upon a heap of bottles and cans hidden from view to, uh, due to elder trees before being dragged five feet into a field where it had been remained exposed through most of the period. Shortly before her body was discovered, the murderer had again returned uh, to the body and moved it three more feet. I'm confused why the moving of yeah. the body. It never, I never saw why, but. Yeah, that's like, a strange thing to just reposition. I, I mean, I guess if it was said that he went back to revisit the bodies and do things, maybe he, you know, moving them into where he wanted them for gross stuff. Right. Two days after the remains had been identified, a young man claiming to be a friend of Fletcher, of the Fletcher family, arrived at the funeral home where she was being held prior to her burial. The man asked to take a photo of her body in the coffin as a keepsake for her parents. Ew. Yeah. When told that this was impossible, the man replied, you mean you can't fix her up enough so I could just get one picture of her? Yuck. Mm. After being sternly informed a second time that he would not be allowed to see the body, he wordlessly left the funeral home. The receptionist could not supply the police with any information other than that he was a handsome young white male with dark hair, that he was driving a blue-gray Chevrolet, and that he had not been carrying a camera. I want to take a picture of my non-existent camera. But he was handsome, so, you oh, know. you got to add that, you know. The second victim, um, almost one year later, on July 5th, 1968, the partially decomposed and mutilated body of 20-year-old art student Joan Elspeth Shell was found by construction workers on a roadside in Ann Arbor. She had been raped and then stabbed 25 times with a knife that is estimated to have measured four inches in length. Several of her wounds had punctured her lungs, liver, and carotid artery with one additional wound behind her left ear, fracturing her skull. On top of the already heinous injuries, her throat had been slashed and her mini skirt was then tied around her neck. While she had been de uh, deceased for several days, her lower body was in an amazingly preserved condition where uh, her head, shoulders, and breasts were in an advanced state of decomposition, 
leading the pathologist to conclude that her body had been stored in a naturally cool environment with the upper third of her body exposed to natural heat. Oh. So the low, the, yeah, the lower body had been in a cool environment and the upper body had been in natural heat. It's like, so what? Yeah, yeah How? that's weird. Yeah. Like a meat cooler with like the curtain thing that comes down? That's I, all I can I think have of. no like, idea. Weird. The the lack of blood under or near the corpse, along with the testimonies from eyewitnesses, led investigators to determine Shell's body had stayed in its present location for less than 24 hours. The murderer had most likely driven to the location to dump, their, dump her body before making basic efforts to conce- conceal Shell's body with clumps of grass. The outstanding similarities between the wounds on Shell's and Fleischer's bodies led the investigators to establish a a definite connection between both murders. Shell had last been seen by her roommate, roommate, Susan Colby, at a bus stop on the evening of June 30th. Shell had intended to travel to Ann Arbor to visit her boyfriend, and Colby went with her to the bus stop. Colby later told investigators that Shell had told her she had intended to hitchhike when it became obvious that she had missed her last bus. And that one of the first vehicles to pass when she began hitchhiking was a red and black Pontiac Bonneville, filled with three young white men. The car came to a stop, and the driver asked her if she wanted a ride. The driver had been around 20 years old with short, dark, side-parted hair. Colby had stated that she had tried to convince Shell not to get into the car, but that Shell ultimately accepted the driver's offers, promising to call Colby when she reached her boyfriend's place to assure her that she was safe. Less than three hours later, Colby reported Shell as missing after she didn't receive a call. Two months after Shell's murder, police uh, inquiries produced two further eyewitnesses who stated that they had seen Shell walking with a young man the evening that she disappeared. Even though neither witness was certain, both believed the student to be John Norman Collins, a student at Eastern Michigan University who was majoring in elementary education. You heard that right. (laughs) Uh... Elementary oh. education. That's, well, wow. it's an yeah. interesting choice. Yeah, especially when you learn some of the ages of some of his victims. Yeah. It's very concerning. And also lived directly across the street from Shell. While being questioned by police, Collins denied even knowing Shell and insisted that he had been spending the weekend of her disappearance with his mother in Detroit and hadn't returned to Ypsilanti until the morning of July 1st. Initially, the police took him at his word and didn't verify his alibi. Hmm. <laughs> <Just>, yeah. <laughs> I am Just, a, okay, sir, whatever. I'm a handsome young college student going to Just, school for elementary education. It couldn't be me, possibly. Right. Um, his third victim, on March 20th, 1969, 23-year-old U of M law student, Jan- Jane Louise Mixer went missing after posting a note on a college bulletin board looking for a ride across the state to Muskegon, where she planned on letting her family know about her recent engagement and imminent move to New York City. Mixer's fully clothed body was was discovered the following morning, covered with her own raincoat and with a copy of the Catch-22 novel by her side, on top of a grave in Denton Cemetery in Van Buren Township. Her autopsy uncovered that Mixer had been shot twice in the head with a 22 caliber pistol, then garroted with a nylon stocking that did not belong to her. The pathologist also stated that Mixer had not been sexually assaulted. 
that she had died at approximately 3 a.m. on March 21st and that she had um, not been murdered at the location where she was found. All, even though she had not been subjected to sexual assault, the fact that her tights had been lowered to expose her, so expose her thighs and sanitary napkin, then motive to seem to be sexual in nature. And although Mixer had not been beaten, stabbed, or mutilated, her status as a student, the tying of the stocking around her neck, and the proximity of her abduction and murder led investigators to link her death to those of Fletcher and Shell. Hmm. And you find out very quickly that the fact that she was menstruating is oh. common in this case. Yeah. Really? Every single one. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The fourth victim, four days after Mixer's body had been found on March 25th, a surveyor discovered the nude and mutilated, uh, mutilated body of a teenage girl behind a vacant house, just a few hundred yards from where Shell's body had been found eight months prior. Investigators at the crime scene noted a dramatic increase in the violence used against the victim, with one investigator describing the injuries inflicted upon the victim as being the worst he had seen in 30 years of police work. The autopsy revealed that she had died from numerous fractures that were covering one-third of her skull and one side of her face, all of which were caused by a heavy blunt instrument. The injuries had been caused after the victim had been extensively beaten and tortured. Her murderer had put a section of her shirt into her trachea oh. to muffle her screams as she received extensive blunt force trauma to the face, head, and body including deep lacerations believed to have been inflicted with a leather strap. Ugh. Welt marks on her chest and shoulders indicated that the murderer had used restraints to hold the victim prone as he whipped her torso and upper legs with a leather belt before tearing a branch from a nearby tree and inserting it eight inches into her oh, vagina. Nope. 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 Don't like that. That's... Ugh. Yeah. This was a, this was a tough one. To, a tough one to look up. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough to listen to. Yeah. Blood spatter and churned soil close to the crime scene indicated that she had been beaten close to where she was found and that she may have attempted to escape from her killer. The victim was identified as 16-year-old Romulus High School student Marilyn Skelton, who had disappeared while hitchhiking in Ann Arbor. She was last seen outside a drive-in two days before her body was found. Investigators found strong similarities between this murder and the previous killings, including the fact that a garter belt had been tied around Skelton's neck and her clothes and shoes had been neatly placed beside her body. The increase in violence shown against Skelton and the fact that she was a known drug user and dealer as opposed to a university student led some junior investigators to think her murder could have been drug-related. Nevertheless, Ann Arbor Police Chief Walter Krasny formally linked her murder to the rest. Following Skelton's death, uh, police from five different, different jurisdictions where the murderer and abducted um, dumped his victims' bodies formally combined to compare information and, and identify the perpetrator. Little physical evidence existed beyond the eyewitness descriptions and forensic reports. Police noted common denominators in the victim's characteristics and in the way they were killed. All had been brunette Caucasian females, each except for Mixer, had received extensive violence with a blunt bladed instrument before the murder. Each had been found within a 15 mile radius of 
Washtenaw County, and each, except Mixer, had received knife wounds to the neck. Each victim had been found with an item of clothing tied around her neck, and each had been menstruating at the time of her murder. This led police to publicly conclude that the same perpetrator was responsible for at least three of the murders so, so far committed. How would he know? That's like, he had to be watching them. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for the fifth and sixth murders, on April 16, the body of 13-year-old Don Louise Bassam. Oh. Yeah. 13-year-old was found beside a desolate road in Ypsilanti, clothed only in a white blouse and bra, which had been pushed around her neck. She had been stabbed repeatedly in the chest and genitals, had received multiple slash wounds across, across her breasts, buttocks, and stomach, then strangled to death with a two-foot-length electrical flex still knotted around her neck. A handkerchief found stuffed into her mouth had likely been placed there to muffle her screams and crying during the torture, and her murderer had put her body in a location where she would be found quickly. Less than two months after uh, Bassam was found on June 9, three teenage boys found a partially nude young woman in a field close to, a, to an abandoned farmhouse. The victim, who was later identified as 21-year-old U of M graduate Alice Elizabeth Callum, had received multiple slash and stab wounds to her body, two of which pierced her heart and a gunshot wound to the forehead before her neck had been cut through to the spine. Her right thumb had also received a gunshot wound, suggesting Bassam had raised her hand to protect herself before the murderer fired the gun at point-blank range. She was also raped, although the pathologist was una unable to determine if it happened before or after her death. Sections of her clothing were scattered around her body, and one of her shoes were missing. By the spring of 69, there was a public outcry regarding the murders committed by the Michigan murderer or co-ed killer. Many female students opted to arm themselves with knives and others operating on a buddy system where they would refuse to walk anywhere unless they were in the company of a trusted male friend or at least three other girls. The final murder being that of Karen Sue Bynaman, an Eastern Michigan University student, was last seen alive on July 23, 1969. Three days after her disappearance, her nude body was found face down in a wooded gully alongside the Huron River Parkway. Her autopsy revealed she had been extensively beaten in the face and body, with some lacerations being so severe that sections of her skin had been removed, no. exposing subcutaneous tissues. Bynaman received extensive skull and brain injuries, which had been inflicted with a blunt instrument, um had been forced to ingest a caustic substance and her neck, shoulders, nipples, and breasts had been burned with that same caustic agent. Oh my gosh. As with the previous victims, her killer had placed a section of cloth in her throat to muffle her screams. She had died of strangulation, although the uh, pathologist noted the blunt, the blunt force injuries inflicted to her skull and brain had been so bad that they would likely to have been proven fatal. She had been raped, and her torn panties had been forcefully, forcefully placed inside of her vagina. Oh. These panties revealed human semen and 509 human hair clippings, which were predominantly blonde. 
and did not belong to the victim. At approximately 2 a.m. the following morning, amid a heavy, a heavy humid storm, one officer observed a young man running, running from the gully. The heavy rain and insect irritation had prevented the officer from observing the young man actually approaching the gully. Although this officer attempted to radio this sighting into his colleagues, the rain had rendered his radio inoperable. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's so much. Yeah. <laughs> this one was very difficult to research. That's for sure. Upon retracing Bynaman's movements on the day she disappeared, police questioned the proprietor of the wig shop that she had visited prior to her disappearance, Diana Joan Gosh. Gosh remembered Bynaman visiting the store to purchase a headpiece on the afternoon of July 23rd. She also remembered seeing a young man with short, side-parted dark hair, wearing a horizontal striped sweater, waiting on a blue motorcycle outside the shop as Bynaman was shopping. Apparently, Bynaman herself asked Gosh, or Gashi, not quite sure which, to observe the man with whom she had accepted a ride, stating that she had made two foolish errors in her life, buying a wig and accepting a ride from a stranger, before stating, I've got to be either the bravest or dumbest girl alive because I've just accepted a ride from this guy. Gosh then watched Bynaman climb onto the motorcycle before her and the young man drove away. Although Gosh uh, would initially and incorrectly described the motorcycle as being possibly a Honda 350. When police questioned Carol Wyzerka, sorry if that's your name, I, I'm having a hard time, a clerk in the store adjacent to the wig shop, Wyzerka uh, was able to state that the model was actually a Triumph. The description of the young man who Bynaman had last been seen with uh, was heard by a tr patrolman named uh, Larry Mathewson, a former Theta Chi fraternity brother, uh. who believed the person described by Gosh and others to be John Norman Collins, who had previously been interviewed but eliminated by police, and who he himself had seen riding his motorcycle around Eastern Michigan University on the ap afternoon of July 23rd. Wow. Yeah. Mathewson questioned Collins, on July 25th, as to his movements two days earlier, and he admitted that on that date, he had been riding his Triumph Bonneville in the area, and that he had stopped to talk with a former girlfriend. The former girlfriend was able to give Mathewson two recent photos of Collins. When shown the photos, both Gosh and her assistant Patricia Spalding were adamant that the man in the photos was the same man seen with Bynaman. No way. It's crazy. <sighs> Some acquaintances of Collins mentioned his politeness around women. And this is where it gets, where you kind of like understand a little bit. While others described his as lascivious and bad tempered, he was known to engage in sexual violence, including one instance where he had raped a woman who resisted him. Several of his female acquaintances divulged that Collins would become enraged when he found out that a woman was menstruating. Really? Enraged. Wow. Yeah. One woman told police that on one instance, when Collins began groping her breasts, she had informed him that she was on her period. In response, Collins yelled at her, that is really disgusting, well, before angrily leaving her apartment. Jeez. I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't know what, 
the fixation is really with periods. But when you have something people backing his, that up, yeah, it's kind of like childhood. Yeah. While questioning Collins's co-workers, investigators learned that Collins had taken delight in describing in graphic detail the injuries inflicted on each victim linked to the killer to his female colleagues. Oh, that's creepy. He claimed his uncle, David Lyke, who served as a sergeant in the police force, had told him. The injuries he described had not been disclosed to the media, and Lyke would inform investigators that he had not disclosed any information to his nephew regarding the murders. Oh, wow. Yeah. On Sunday, July 27, police arrived at the Collins, at the apartment Collins shared with his roommate, Arnold Davis. Even though Collins protested his innocence and insisted the eyewitness accounts of him had been an error, he refused to return to the police station to take a polygraph. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Yeah. The following night, Davis saw Collins leaving his bedroom, carrying a box partially covered by a blanket. As Davis opened the door for Collins, he saw the contents, including a, a purple women's shoe, rolled up jean material, and a burlap purse. Later that night, Collins told Davis that he simply decided to get rid of the box and its contents. Yeah, his trophies, probably. Well, the shoe, uh, one of the women was missing her shoe. Ah. Um, and then, like, rolled up jean material, probably clothing from one of them. Yeah. Um, Collins's uncle, State Police Sergeant David Lyke, had been on vacation with his family at the time of Bynum's disappearance. And had only returned home on July 29 three days after the discovery of her body. Throughout their vacation, Collins had been temporarily living in the Lake family's Ypsilanti home, having been granted sole access to the house so that he could feed their dog, a German shepherd. Upon their return from their vacation, Lake's wife, Sandra, had noticed numerous paint marks covering the floor of the family basement, and that several items, including a bottle of ammonia, some washing powder, and a canister of black spray paint were missing from the home. Hmm. Yeah. The same day, Lyke was advised by investigators of his uh, nephew's suspect status and the level of circumstantial evidence unfolding against him. Lyke acknowledged that the evidence thus far gathered against his nephew was compelling. Although in his first uh, interview, he did not advise officers of the items missing from his home or the paint marks he and his wife had found upon the floor of the family basement. However, the following morning, Lyke scraped away some of the black paint, which had been sprayed into the basement to reveal a stain which looked ominously like human blood, and immediately returned to the police station to report his findings. Hmm. I mean, I could say at least Lyke has some sort of backbone to not protect his nephew. Like, no, 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 no. Um, Well, I imagine you you don't want to believe it and some cleaning stuff missing you might be like okay that's i don't know why you would take it but that's not obvious like you did something right but yeah i can see him then being like well let me just check something Mm -hmm. the basement of sergeant lake's home was subjected to an intense forensic examination Although forensic experts would deduce later that morning that the stains covered by the black paint had actually been varnish stains, one of the investigators discovered numerous hair clippings, many measuring less than three-eighths of an inch beside the family washing machine. 
when questioned uh, as to the source of these clippings, like who had not been informed of the discovery of the hair, uh, hair clippings upon Vitamin's panties, inf uh, informed investigators that his wife regularly cut their children's hair in the basement, and then she had done so shortly before the family embarked upon their vacation. Moreover, the search had also uncovered small blood stains in nine areas of the basement. Two of these blood stains were discovered to be type A, the blood type of Karen Sue Vitamin. Wow. So, like, she had cut, her, uh, the woman had cut her children's hair, and that must have been the hair clippings that were found within her panties yeah. that had been so viciously shoved inside of her. That's insane. Like, the, I mean, the nerve just to be like, hey, oh, hey, they're gone. Let me murder someone in their basement. Right, right. Ugh. The hairs found about Bynaman panties and those recovered from the basement of the like home were subjected to a detailed forensic uh, neutron analysis to determine whether they had sourced from the same individuals. Samples recovered from both locations would prove to be a precise match. Evidently, despite Collins's uh, protests of innocence the d and denials of even knowing Bynaman, the girl had been in, in the basement of Collins's uncle at the time of shortly before or shortly after her murder. So, I mean, it's like, duh. Like, come on, man. You're caught. Yeah, that's just so, just so <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. This whole thing. Yeah, very much so. Um, questioning of Likes neighbors produced additional circumstantial evidence. One neighbor, Marjorie Barnes, recalled having witnessed Collins leaving his uncle's home with a deluxe laundry detergent box prior to the Like family returning home from their vacation. Another neighbor informed investigators that she had heard the muffled screams of a young female coming from the like household on the evening of Vitamin's disappearance. And just didn't say anything about it? Screams <laughs> coming from a house where everyone is supposed to be gone? Right. Maybe called police? <laughs> right. Despite recovering numerous stolen items from his apartment and being informed by Arnold Davis that Collins had been in the habit of committing burglaries with a former roommate of theirs named Andrew Manuel, no incriminating evidence linking Collins to Bynaman or any victim of the Michigan murders was discovered. Although officers were informed by Arnold Davis on this date of the incident two days before in which he had observed Collins carrying a box uh, containing women's clothing and jewelry from his apartment to his car. On August 19, 1970, John Norman Collins was unanimously found guilty of first-degree murder of Karen Sue Bynaman. He remained impassive upon hearing the jury foreman announce the verdict, although many spectators gasped audibly, and his mother and sister left the courtroom in tears. Formal sentencing was scheduled for 8.30 a.m. on August 28th, on this date, Collins was formally sentenced to life imprisonment with no uh, possibility of parole. Prior to his passing sentence, Judge Conlin asked Collins if he wished to address the court before mandatory life sentencing was imposed. In response, Collins rose from his chair and made the following speech. I have two things to say. I think they, the jury, conscientiously tried to give me a fair trial. The jury did not take its tasks lightly, but I think things were blown out of proportion. The circumstances surrounding this case prevented me from getting a fair trial. It was a travesty of justice that took place in this courtroom. I hope someday it will be corrected. 
Second, I never knew a girl named Karen Sue Bynaman. I never had a conversation with her. I never took her to a wig shop. I never took her to my uncle's home. I never took her life. Hmm. Yeah. Collins was then informed by Judge Conlin that if the juror's verdict was wrong, the error would be corrected in due course. He was then sentenced to serve a term of life imprisonment with hard labor in solitary confinement at Southern Michigan Prison. Upon re uh, receipt of the guilty verdict against their client, Collins' def defense attorneys announced their intention to appeal upon the grounds of tainted identification and the change of venue question. The first motion by Collins' attorneys contending denial of defense motions to move the trial outside of Washtenaw County and the prejudice of prosecution witnesses was filed in the Michigan courtroom of appeals on December 14, 1970. The first appeal was formally rejected on October 24, 1972. He was uh, never tried for the murders of Fletcher, Shell, Skelton, Bassam, or Callum, but physical and circumstantial evidence exists in each case indicating that he had indeed committed those murders. Oh. And there was also an additional case uh, in California that was linked to him, but they didn't try, uh, try him for that either. Um, they didn't, I guess, want to send him over there to deal with it. Yeah. How? I don't know how I've never heard of this case before. I, I know. Same. But yeah, I got most of my information from Wikipedia, but I also uh, found some off of... Um, a murderpedia page. Nice. So, yes, it was very, it's, it makes me ill, especially like the Muskegon thing. Like I lived right next to Muskegon. Like why, how did I not hear of this? I mean, yeah, it was like the late sixties, but like, I would think that I would have heard something. Yeah. It's kind of a, a big case yeah. for Michigan. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you think it's pretty oh, sickening. Maybe some other big cases in other places were going on at similar times. Because I don't know when, like, Bundy and the Night Stalker and Zodiac Killer and all those. Yeah. It seems like something that may have just, you know, Got you don't really down. hear about those, this, because there's all those other, you know, craziness. Going on back then. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was me even condensing a lot. It's, it's pretty extensive, extensive case and it's just horrifying. Graphic. What this monster did. Yeah. I, ugh. Okay. Well. <laughs> mine is a lot less graphic. Okay. Yay. So. I'm going to talk to you about the death of Juanita Richardson. So I'm going to set the scene here. We'll just do like a wave your fingers. I need that. I need the music when you're <laughs> like a harp. No, that's not going to work. I can't. I can't do a harp noise. Um, just imagine you're at the pictured rocks looking over beautiful Lake Superior, enjoying the scenery as you look out from the edge of the 140 foot cliff. Maybe you're thinking about what you're going to do later, or maybe you're annoyed with all the fucking black flies. And then you go, or are pushed, over the edge. 
This is what happened to Winita Richardson. On June 22, 2006, Winita and her husband, Thomas David Richardson of McBain, were on vacation at the Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore. Winita was a secretary at their local school and sang in the church choir, and Thomas was a driver for FedEx and also taught youth group at their church. Thomas and Winita, who had been married for 23 years, were recent empty nesters and were on what Thomas called a second honeymoon. Thomas claimed he left Winita at the edge to use the bathroom and said, When I came back, she was facing me. Winita looked at me with a smile. Then he said she gestured toward the water, turned around, and fell. He said he saw Winita's feet flip up in the air. She was going over, and I heard her scream, Oh my God, or Oh dear God. And I heard her scream as she fell down. And that's when I lost my wife. Mm. That was a direct quote from him. Right. Uh, he then said he passed out, and when he regained consciousness, he went to the edge and saw her body, passed out again, and when he came to the second time, he ran for help. Okay. Yeah, he passed out twice. <laughs> sure, dude. Uh, at the hospital later, he said, uh, they wheeled me up to her, and I saw her broken, battered face, and she was gone, and my life's never been the same. It was like a side note to this crazy um it was around 11 a.m and pictured rocks has these um kind of like little glass bottom boat tours i don't know if we want to call them a cruise ship um they were nearby after it happened so they tried to get close to see if she was still alive there were families that saw her body as the most closer <laughs> oh no i don't think that would be good for tourism but, I mean... Yeah, definitely not. If you're kind of morbid, that I don't know if that'd be interesting to see. Probably not right. my preference when on vacation, but... Right. To each their own. <laughs> uh, investigators said during the trial, however, that Richardson originally told them he did not see her fall. Later claiming he mentally blocked it out and regained the memory later. He changed his story multiple times when being questioned... Um, at one point claiming it was suicide, but then later saying it was officers who first mentioned suicide. Right. He also claimed police tried to upset him by saying maybe she was involved with another man or embezzled money from her job. Um, he also denied claims of domestic abuse, which his three adult children supported. <clears throat> um, he also denied claims of abusive language that witnesses described during the trial. Um, saying that it was a matter of perception. Okay. But in a story um, by NBC, the ver so this is the version they reported on on the story that I found, uh, was that he didn't see her fall at all and that she was missing and was later found by park rangers. So we've got like many different versions of I saw her go over and then uh, it was falling and then it was jumping. And then it was, right. I went to the bathroom and I came back and she was gone. And, you know, he can't keep his story straight. Right. One of those interviewed said, she's not going to get close enough to the edge of a cliff. She didn't like heights. And <laughs> as someone who also does not like heights, I, I would concur that, you know, 
if you don't like heights, you're not going to get you're close enough to, yeah. to the edge to be able to fall. Like if something happened like that to my mother, I'd call bullshit right out the way. Because yeah. she's scared of watching videos of people being high up in there. Yeah. Bullshit. My mom's not going to stand on that ledge. And I think I remember telling you when this happened that if I was ever to go over the edge of a cliff, I wouldn't have put myself there. No. <laughs> and it wouldn't have. I told my husband about that. He's like... Why would you say that? If anything happens to you, they're going to look at me. And I said, well, well, they always look at the spell <laughs> anyway, so I don't think it would make I much mean, of a difference. It's like, well, if you're going to push me over the edge of the cliff, I hope they do investigate you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> like, they always look at the husband first anyway. And I think most people that know me know that, you know, I have a, a child and I also am slightly afraid of heights, so I'm not going to be getting close enough. The only way I'd be going over is if I'm back and there's a collapse of some kind. Right. Um, and then from the court documents, um, in explaining all of these inconsistent stories of what happened, Richardson claimed to suffer from memory loss due to a workplace injury. But... Uh, many of the witnesses had never observed any other evidence of memory loss, um, nor had they heard Richardson mention it before Winita's death. So since she's dead, I have memory loss from this previous right. thing. Why does no one remember that I have memory loss? Okay. So in discussing Richardson, uh, Richardson's inconsistent stories, the prosecution's expert witness stated that based on her review of the research, here's a quote, in reports of dissociative amnesia, typically once the memory returns, it's there, it returned. Um, that witness found that it led to a conclusion that telling different stories at different times is a matter of choice, not a matter of memory suddenly disappearing again. So basically, like, once your memory is gone, if it comes back, it comes back. And you're not doing this back and forth. I remember, I don't remember, I remember, I don't. Like Right. Um, other allegations were made that he plotted to kill his wife so he could have a relationship with Kelly Brophy, who Richardson claimed was a friend and prayer partner. <laughs> yeah, prayer partner, of course. And if you know anybody that's super religious... Your prayer partner would be your spouse, not mm. a woman you're friends with. And I'm saying this with air quotes. Um, right. Richardson said, I was not planning on killing my wife. My wife and I were getting along as good as we ever got along. He was, at the time of his wife's death, actively pursuing at least one other woman, Kelly Brophy, that was mentioned before, whom he had asked to wait for him and told he could take care of. Brophy, however, had told Richardson that if he wanted to be together, then his ex-wife couldn't be alive. Who's, you know, actually his wife at the time. So. <laughs> uh, Richardson told Brophy that his wife had breast cancer, which she did not, and that she would be dead by Christmas, which she was. Brophy denied the relationship and said they were friends who talked about the Bible and scripture. Which I don't know about you, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I talk scripture with all my friends, um, especially of the opposite sex. 
Um, however, Richardson and Brophy made 383 phone calls, including a call the night before we need his death. Not suspicious at all. No, not at all. Uh, shortly before their fateful trip to their honeymoon spot, Winita reported that her husband had been ragging on her to get a will, which, <laughs> if you're into true crime, you always know uh, insurance or wills is a, a big red flag. <laughs> right. Especially kind of out of nowhere. So Richardson requested weekend appointments to meet with attorneys, weekend appointments even, uh, to draft a will the weekend before their trip. Uh, as soon as Richardson learned that a will was not necessary to uh, avoid probate in the event of one of their deaths, because they own their property jointly, Richardson's insistent on ha- insistence on having the wills drafted completely dissipated. After Winita's death, Richardson began pursuing other women more aggressively. According to the testimony from Brophy and her daughter, Richardson appeared uninvited at Brophy's residence. As a gift, he even brought a plant from Juanita's funeral. Oh, wow. How thoughtful this funeral plant that you're giving me. Uh, I mean, of all, of all the gifts, I don't, I would not want that. Do not give me, do not give me a funeral plant as a gift for a romantic relationship. Nope. Um, right. I, I mean, I could think of better things, obviously. I mean, cheap ass. <laughs> you didn't even pay for them yourself. <laughs> uh, an intelligence analyst testified that there were 52 calls between Richardson and Brophy in the weeks following Wayne's death. Also, according to testimony from Tammy Cyan, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Shane Richardson became involved in August 2006, two months after his wife's death. He was obviously very broken up. Very. Uh, Additionally, several weeks after Winita Richardson's death, Thomas Richardson approached the branch manager of his bank to discuss negotiating memorial fund checks that he had received. Apparently, he had told other employees at the bank that he had wanted to cash the memorial checks and was told they couldn't just be cashed. They needed to go into a memorial fund set up specifically for that. Still, Richardson asked a bank employee if he could take her out to dinner within months of his wife's death. When his offer was rejected, he sent the employee a card with his phone number. Because he's a massive creep. Uh, Finally, two months after Winita's death, Richardson unknowingly met an undercover agent when getting dinner with a larger group. Four months after Winita's death, after exhibiting a high level of interest in the undercover agent and regularly suggesting that the two meet, Richardson met with the agent alone. So on February 6, 2007, Richardson was arrested while at work and was brought to the jail in Munising. The same month, the preliminary hearing began to see if there was enough evidence to charge Richardson and bring the trial to a jury. It was said the motive was Winita was considering divorce, the couple's debt, and Richardson's other love interest. And the trial itself had plenty of drama. Several weeks after the preliminary examination, the prosecutor, Karen Barman, demanded that Richardson's defense attorney be removed from the case for intimidating a witness. 
Uh, Barman contended that his attorney had a conversation with Kelly Brophy, um, essentially saying she could lose her child and be considered an accessory to murder. The defense attorney appealed the dismissal and it was allowed to return later after Richardson already had a new attorney. Uh, so he was kept on a second chair for the trial. And then after Juanita died, Richardson started wearing sunglasses often, including indoors, uh, claiming his disorder made him sensitive to light. It's just so much bullshit spewing out of this man's mouth all the time. Uh, Berman requested he not wear the sunglasses during the trial so the jury could look him in the eye. Um, later, the defense attorneys requested Barman be removed from the case because they said she illegally obtained materials from Richardson's cell by having another inmate steal them. And now, <laughs> I, don't, I don't see that happening <laughs> because, I mean, my husband works in a prison and they'll just steal shit to steal shit, especially if they think, oh, hey, if I give someone something that might be interesting for their trial, maybe I'll get a deal. Right. That's just that's just how it is. Barman said it was retaliatory by having the previous defense attorney removed, uh, but she stayed working on the trial. Well, it's kind of a shit move <laughs> by them. Like, oh, we'll just get rid of her. Yeah, no. In August, Richardson's cellmate said that Richardson solicited him to kill Barman. Uh, then the defense requested a change in venue due to media coverage. Because Munising is a fairly small town in the Upper Peninsula. Um, so it was moved to Manistique, 30 miles away. So it was still within the circuit district and a new judge was assigned. The trial began on March 3rd, 2008. One of the witnesses, Richardson's friend Steve Vanderwall, whose wife recently died of cancer, testified about a conversation he and Richardson had. Richardson was envious of his friend's financial windfall when he received the life insurance payout. So, uh, so you know, this guy's wife died of cancer and he's just thinking, wow, look at all this money he got from life insurance. Like Scumbag. a dick. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Garbage human being. Obviously a narcissist, if that's his first thought. Right. Um, the life insurance policy Richardson would receive would completely wipe out his debt. Also, they were separated between 1999 and 2000. So they previously had been separated. Juanita's friends knew she planned to divorce Richardson as soon as their youngest, their son, was out of the house. He graduated high school earlier in the month that she died. Martial arts instructor testified how he instructed Richardson on chokeholds. And Winita's father also testified that early in the marriage, Winita had facial bruises. She said were from Richardson. And her father said, I'd kill him if it ever happened again. So, go dad. Uh, witnesses for the defense said Richardson was easy to talk to, was a man of high integrity, and he loved his family. But, I mean... Loving your family doesn't necessarily include your wife. <laughs> right. Uh, on May 19th, 2008, a jury convicted Thomas Richardson of first-degree murder. The official on the state website is homicide, murder first-degree premeditated, but causing her to fall from a cliff, 
in the Pictured Rocks National Park and was sentenced to life. Richardson's parents and his children sat on his side, not believing that Richardson was guilty. Immediately after the sentencing, Richardson was interviewed by Dateline before he was transported to prison in Marquette and then transported uh, and then transferred to the prison in Jackson. After being charged, Richardson was housed in a cell with two witnesses. Both of them testified that he said that the prosecuting attorney would be the next bitch to go off a cliff. In 2019, he attempted to appeal the decision in the U.S. Court of Appeals, and the appeal was denied. And if you're wondering where he is now, you can find him in the Michigan Department of Corrections offender tracking system. Uh, he's currently at the Saginaw Correctional Facility as a level two inmate, which if you don't know, it's it goes from a scale of one to five. So one is the lowest like minimum security and five is max. So he's at a level two. And I found a lot of this information from there's an MLive article. Um, you can find the actual appeal just through Google. And then some of it was also from a book, Murder in Michigan's Upper Peninsula by Sunny Longtime, mm. which that's a cool name. <laughs> I forgot to mention too with the Ypsilanti Ripper, he is currently imprisoned at the Marquette Branch Prison. Oh, so that's a level five. That's max. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like we need something lighter after all that business. So <laughs> let's say what's our, um, we need like a hell yes. Like what's something good that either happened recently or that may be good. That's going to happen sometime soon. Any good news is good. Oh, I got Joey to eat ice cream. <laughs> And my mom got him to eat a cupcake today. Nice. So we're thrilled with that. Cupcakes are always good. Yeah, I got him to eat ice cream a few days ago, which sometimes he will, but he has a thing with like spoons and picking oh, it up. Okay. He doesn't want that. But I was able to get him to use an ice cream cone. So. Awesome. Yeah. I'm going camping this weekend. Ooh. And I'm excited. Well, careful with that. Because <laughs> we all know what happens to campers. <laughs> well, you're also forgetting. I have a concealed carry license. <laughs> and we're in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So we're a True. bit like Texas. <laughs> Everybody's got like guns. Texas. When the... um. The movie, he was Red Dawn, came out, and there's all those people coming in to take over, like, cities and stuff. I said to Nathan, I said, look at the map. You notice how they're avoiding Michigan? <laughs> it's like, it's probably a good reason. You'd have all, like, the gang members Loopers. in Detroit just shooting everyone as they come down. And then in the UP, everyone's got their hunting rifles and... And lots of land that they know everything about. <laughs> That's true. We got lots of woods around here. Lots of places to hide in the UP. 
which is why I'll, I'll go over this in like a later episode. It's like way, way down the line. But there were mobsters that used to come up to the Upper Peninsula. And um, I remember my husband's grandfather, one of them, they, they used to just drive around all the time. And they came up to a gated area in the middle of the woods. And these guys in suits with like those big old... Were they Tommy guns? We're standing there and told them to get lost. <laughs> oh my so, gosh. I think Dillinger was even up here at one point. So, Yeah, I think uh, probably Dillinger, Babyface Nelson. Yeah. So I feel like we should let everyone know our sign off for this yeah. is very close to our hearts because our grandfather used to say something. And it's very fitting for this topic. So would you like to do the honors? Sure. Watch out for the crazies. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.